Well, good morning. Glad you could uh, watch, listen, join in. And uh, if you want to grab your Bible, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 today uh, because we're going to answer a question that came in from who's who in the zoo in regard to Acts chapter 2. Uh, you'll forgive me for the Susian vibe there, but uh, I couldn't resist. So here we go. Uh, question. In Acts 2, at the Jewish feast on Pentecost, over 3,000 were saved. Others said the apostles were drunk. Some heard them in their own language. Uh, who out of that mixture of thousands were the ones saved? Were the ones who thought they were drunk not able to hear the message in their language? Uh, were they only uh, local Jews that were saved or others in the gathering saved? Thank you in advance for your interpretation of that chapter. Uh, may the Lord richly bless you and yours. And, uh, and and right back at you, the Lord bless you and yours as well. Thanks for the question. Um, if you want to open up to Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at this. Acts chapter 2 is a very pivotal uh, moment in biblical history. Um, it is not only the fulfilling of a promise that Jesus said was from the Father, uh, where they would, the disciples would be endued with power from on high. This is mentioned at the end of Luke's gospel, also in Acts chapter 1, and now here in Acts chapter 2, as they are gathered together in the upper room, um, and this, uh, and this, this event takes place. And so the Holy Spirit is poured out now upon the believers, these are those who are, in fact, at this point, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on the disciples, and they received the Holy Spirit. He now uh, dwelt within believers, and this now begins what we would consider um, the new covenant uh, expression of one who is saved. In other words, anyone who has come to faith in Christ from that point on was now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised earlier in the Upper Room Discourse before his uh, crucifixion. Um, uh, also, this is um, uh, typically recognized uh, as the beginning of the church age. Uh, now, there is some debate about that. I want to acknowledge that there are two different views on the beginning, uh, two primary views, there's, there may be others, but there's two really that are primary views on when the beginning of the church took place. Acts chapter 2 is one of those where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes or endued with power from on high, and it begins the sort of the gospel era. Um, the other view would be in Acts chapter 9, uh, holding that the church really was not born until after the ministry of Paul began. Um, uh, there are those that would hold a, 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 a version of dispensationalism where that would be seen as really the, the beginning of the church age. Um, there's, there's arguments to be made for both. I happen to land on the Acts chapter 2 side of things, but uh, certainly nothing to divide over. Um, but, but anyway, just to make known that there is that, that, that difference in view. Also, Acts chapter 2 becomes the beginning of what we would correctly define as the last days. Uh, Peter will quote from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 36, where he marks this event of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the um, um, uh, and, and all that really, uh, without going back and forth to Joel and that, you can read that. But uh, in bringing forth what Joel has described back in his day, now taking place in Acts chapter 2, um, as Joel declares, Peter reiterates that this now marks the beginning of the last days. So really, from the point of about the resurrection of Christ, we could use that as kind of the line of demarcation. Once the resurrection takes place, we have now moved into um, uh, the, the era of the last days. It's not just the days in which we're living, but really this era began all the way back in Acts chapter 2. And again, I would say you could fairly just connect that with the resurrection as well. So that being said, let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter 2 and consider the question. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I should point out that you can also read 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 to get a sense of the spiritual gifts, among which are the gift of tongues, which takes place here uh, as an evidence of the uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Before I move on, I don't think that this is the sign gift that demonstrates that you're saved. And if you don't speak with tongues, that you have to worry that somehow you're not saved. That's not the case. In Acts chapter 12, we're told how the Holy Spirit uh, distributes uh, gifts as he wills. To some, he gives a gift of tongues. To others, he gives other giftings. Uh, The gift of tongues is not universal for everybody. I know there are some uh, factions within the body of Christ that that do believe that that's the case. I would disagree with that very much uh, based on Paul's own writing. Uh, But anyway, that being the case, we come back to Acts chapter 2. They began to speak with other tongues, in other words, languages they did not previously speak, as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And uh, when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are uh, are uh, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language, which we uh, were born, or language or dialect, or, you know, they're all hearing very specifically what the disciples are saying in their own language, which, by the way, has given rise to um, a couple of different ideas of how this gift functioned at that point. Um, um, were they speaking all of these different languages in, 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 as the Spirit gave utterance? Or, was, or did they just hear them in their own language or not? I think likely, if it's consistent with what the gift of tongues uh, can be seen as defined as, uh, it would seem to me that they were speaking in languages that those who heard understood, and they're just all recognizing that they're each hearing it uh, in the language that they speak. And so I don't necessarily know that Uh, One language was spoken by the disciples, but they just heard it in their own language. I think actually the disciples uh, who were um, endued with power from on high were speaking, and they were speaking in the languages of all of those who are about to be listed as having gathered there in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Um, Verse 9 continues, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia uh, and, and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, and we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So we also not just understand they're speaking in these different languages, but we're told what they're saying. They're, they're not specifically the words they're saying. But they're speaking of the uh, of the wonderful works of God. They're glorifying God for his works and such, and maybe even enumerating some of those works in that. Um, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, however, mocking, said they are full of new wine. So the way this unfolds is that they are endued with the power of on high, as promised, um, uh, I forget if I mentioned this before, but you can read John 14 through 16 in the Upper Room Discourse and see much uh, mention of the Holy Spirit and some of the work that he would do and the fact that he would not only be with them, but would be in them. And then, of course, we're also told that they would be endued with power from on high uh, elsewhere as well. So <clears throat> as they're endued with power, they then kind of burst forth from this 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 room there in this place that they've gathered, and they begin declaring in languages that are not their native tongue. Uh, the wonderful works of God. And people in the multitude who have gathered, thousands are gathered around this area, and they hear, and of course during Pentecost, one of the major feasts in Israel, lots and lots and lots of people were in Jerusalem during that time. And so as this event took place, all of those who were around it when it took place heard them uh, in the language that they were, that they uh 
you know, had been speaking since birth. In other words, their own native tongues from all these different places that are listed here. Uh, both uh, Jews who lived in these different places, also Gentiles who were proselytes from different places, and they all heard this wonderful uh, worship of God and blessing him for his works and all this kind of thing. So um, there are those who heard what was going on and understood what was happening, at least in terms of, of hearing what they were saying. Others, on the other hand, apparently did not necessarily uh, either did not understand what they were saying, and therefore they were talking gibberish, or they didn't really recognize that these weren't the native tongues of the speakers or something to that effect where they were just mocking. And I think the the real emphasis there, uh, in my view, is really just the fact that they were mocking this. They didn't see this as being an evidence of God in any way. They, uh, they just rejected it. And so um, specifically, um, <clears throat> you know, whether they understood what was being said or not is not entirely clear in the passage. But whatever the case, they were mocking. Now, at that point, then, it goes on in verse 14, it says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to quote, again, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 36, or 32, actually. And, um, um, but this passage, again, initiates a period of time known as the last days. And Peter uses this as a springboard to then share uh, about the, the importance of coming to Christ, who's been crucified, who you crucified. He goes on to tell them. Uh, matter of fact, let's kind of, uh, I'll encourage you to read the whole passage. It is a wonderful passage to spend uh, a lot of time in. But I will just lead us to sort of the end of, of Peter's uh, message here. On verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as our Lord uh, as the Lord our God will call. So they were the immediate response to Peter's preaching when he finally just drops the anvil or drops the hammer on the anvil and lets them experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, recognizing that Jesus has died for their sins, that they actually, in, in, in large part, were responsible for him being handed over and all of this kind of thing. They are convicted. They are literally cut to the heart and they call out, what, what do we do? What do we do about this? Is there, is there hope for us? What happens? What can we do? And Peter tells them, repent. In other words, there needs to be a change of heart and mind from one place to another. Uh, and ultimately, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Um, so, uh, as it goes on to say in verse 40, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who received the word, or even gladly received his word, were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. So a big opening day for the church. Uh, suddenly now about 3,000 or you know, plus people are now believers following Jesus, having come to Christ during that period of time. Um, as far as, you know, again, who, who was saved among that, that group? Were any of those who were mocking saved? Were any of those, uh, you know, who didn't, uh, maybe didn't understand what was being said in that, uh, in the opening uh, moments of this event taking place where the disciples were speaking in tongues. Um, I would say, uh, as I kind of maybe just take another minute to unpack, uh, take a minute to unpack that answer, 
I don't believe the whole message was spoken in tongues. I do think that they they initially began to worship in that way, but I don't know that that necessarily means that Peter stood up and spoke in all of these tongues or something that they all understood, but rather he just spoke in his native language, but now he spoke clearly the gospel. The reason I think that is because that does tend to be the pattern throughout the book of Acts, is that something miraculous takes place that the preaching of the gospel might then follow. In other words, there is a validating of the message that's about to be given. Uh, or in some cases, maybe the, um, uh, you know, the message might be validated by something miraculous after. But typically, what you see happening is something miraculous that then catches their attention, and they realize the power of God is present, and then they begin to hear the gospel. And so uh, I tend to think that the point of the speaking in tongues was so that it might, in fact, open the way then for the gospel to be preached, in which case I believe Peter then just spoke you know, natively uh, to them. And they understood, you know, being in Jerusalem and that, and they, uh, most of them likely did speak uh, the common tongue of the day and all that, which would have been uh, Greek or Aramaic and that, along with whatever tongues that they, you know, languages they spoke uh, in the countries that they uh, resided in. So um, uh, the gospel was not veiled from anybody necessarily in terms of it being preached openly. Uh, but were any of those who are mocking saved? Well, I, I don't have any particular reason to doubt it. Um, first off, we know even, well, actually from Peter's own lips later in Second Peter um, chapter 3, verse 9, where God's desire is that none should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of the truth. And so the intention there is not necessarily to preach it so that some don't believe, but rather to give them opportunity to believe. Um, we do know that um, the the result of what took place here, where they were cut to the heart, and they they cried out, "What what do we do?" This is, of course, you know, uh, reminiscent of the the author to Hebrews when he said in chapter twelve and thirteen, or verse twelve and thirteen of chapter four, "For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and a marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to, to the eyes of Him to whom we must give." an account. Um, you could couple this with Isaiah 55, where uh, verses 1 through 11, really, maybe even further, but certainly 1 through 11, speak of the uh, the calling of God to all who will come, all who are thirsty can come and drink and such. Um, there is mention of, of, uh, of, of coming and receiving um, uh, the, you know, of the goodness of God in that, and that his word would not return void, but it accomplishes the purpose that he sets it forth to do. In other words, he says these things that there might be an impact as a result of them. So I don't have any reason to believe that, well, and one more thing, I guess, too, all of us in some way or another were rejectors, if not outright mockers of the gospel before we got saved. And so, you know, does that mean uh, that that all of them got saved that day? Not necessarily. Some people have hardness of heart that uh, that never ultimately breaks. But uh, for others, they, you know, maybe even some from among that mocking group there, um, hearing the gospel and and uh, and hearing Peter's preaching, were broken and were among those who called out, wondering, "What shall I do?" You know. Um, so we don't know specifically, I mean, I don't want to, you know, say, well, oh, right here in this verse, it says that the mockers got saved. We don't, we don't have that per se, but there's really no reason to think from the passage. There's no precluding element in the passage that would, would, uh, would make it, uh, seem as though that there's no way they could have been. Uh, I, I, I really don't see any reason why we couldn't very well believe that some of those who were in that condition one moment, the next moment after having heard the word being preached to them, uh, were broken of that. Um, and so, 
Um, and then, of course, we see the Christian community begin to grow and to thrive and to begin to depend on each other. And, and uh, you know, of course, Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, we see the model of the church unfolding as the Holy Spirit uh, adds daily to the church those that would be saved. And um, so, um, uh, yeah, so so anyway, you know, um, I think the attitude and heart of God is that people would come to believe the truth uh, and that uh, this preaching of the gospel likely gave that opportunity uh, and likely was received by many of those who were resistant up to that point. And by the way, uh, to, to, to one degree or another, everybody in that crowd uh, was also resistant when they showed up that day. Um, either they hadn't heard or they had heard, but they weren't necessarily believing. It wasn't until this event that those 3,000 or so souls were added to the church. In other words, were saved. And so... Um, you know, we never ought to think that the level of resistance and hostility that a person may show to the gospel uh, or even to the power of God being manifest should necessarily be an indicator that they will never come. I say that because we should always be open to sharing the gospel with people that are even wildly resistant, at least give an opportunity. It is true that Jesus told the disciples that when they would come to a town, if their peace uh, uh, would not rest upon that place because they were rejected, that they were to take their peace back and to go on to the next place, wipe the dust off your sandals and such. You won't even get through all the cities of Israel before I return. So, you know, there is a point at which we say, okay, well, we've let you know, here you go, but we're going to move on now and, and, and bring, bring the gospel to the next group that God leads us to. Um, and we just leave them in the hands of the Lord. And so some of these who may have been very resistant may have re- remained very resistant. Some may never have gotten saved. Some, on the other hand, may have remembered this experience and the preaching, and that was part of the process of planting and watering uh, that ultimately led to the Lord giving increase in their hearts later. And so we just don't know. But don't ever be discouraged. You know, um, when, when you see something happening that seems like very strong resistance to the gospel, remember that it's not your words, but it's rather God's words that ultimately hit their mark. Don't return void. Give the increase um, and, and and open the gates of, of salvation to those who will believe. And so... Um, anyway, it's a good question, and again, it's a it's a wonderful passage to consider and to spend uh, a good season in. We actually started our church uh, 15 years ago in the Book of Acts, and uh, and spent some time on that passage. I'm not sure we have that recorded now from all that time ago, but uh, at some point we'll go through the Book of Acts again. Actually, we did on the podcast a couple of years ago, I think. So you could probably go through that, but. Um, but again, a wonderful, wonderful passage in uh, at the beginning of a wonderful, wonderful book talking about the history of the beginning of the, the body of Christ. So as a matter of fact, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, as it's generally called, would probably more rightly be called it's uh, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the disciples. Uh, the book itself is just called Acts in the Greek, uh, praxis. And so it's just uh, just that term. But really, it demonstrates the works of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the Holy Spirit in uh, establishing the church. So great, great stuff. Thanks for asking the question, who's who in the zoo about Acts chapter two. And uh, if you have any questions or thoughts you'd like to share, uh, you are always welcome to share them in our comments section uh, or uh, here on YouTube. Or if you want to email me, you can do that at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. So uh, appreciate very much. And uh, thank you again for watching and listening. And uh, Father, we do pray that uh, even as we see these uh, events taking place in the book of Acts, where we see people who are one moment unbelieving and the next moment believing as the preaching of the gospel was brought to bear and the power of the word of God was demonstrated. And even on top of that, the power of the Holy Spirit was very, very evident uh, in, the, uh, in, his, in his outpouring of his power upon 
these disciples to speak in tongues and to glorify you and and uh, and ultimately uh, open the way for um, you know for the gospel to take root. So help us in our day to be no less reliant <clears throat> on the Holy Spirit. Uh, to not be discouraged by the resistance of of those outside who, at this moment at least, uh, are are not uh, do not seem in any way open to the gospel. But we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what happens after a bit more planting and watering. At some point, it may very well be that you'll give the increase. So help us just to be about that which you've given us to do, but to recognize what is only yours to do, and uh, to never doubt that you could do that in the life of somebody that we love and care about, or maybe even a stranger on the street that we just met. But we thank you that you are, in fact, in the business of saving people and uh, of increasing uh, 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 the body of Christ and bringing people to faith. We thank you, Lord, that your desire is not that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. So thank you, Father. We love you and praise you, and uh, thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.